This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, and with Mawera Karatai in Fakatani. Kia ora, Sam. Kia ora. How are you going today? Good. Uh, I've just mm-hmm. finished a massive project of, um, of uh, building this incredible palace for my chickens, and they are now running free in the palace. And, uh, and it seems a fitting day to, um, to be talking about my chickens when we're about to interview the one person who I see as the is the real champion for primary industries in our country. And uh, so it's my absolute pleasure to introduce uh, Kiri Tapu Allen, um, who is the uh, current list MP for the East Coast, which is an absolutely huge electorate um, and one of my favourite people. So um, Kiri Tapu, welcome. And thank you for, I know you are just flat out. Thank you for giving us some of your time today. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for the invitation and the very kind remarks. Um, looking forward to having a bit of a yarn. So how was your bubble life? Bubble life was an interesting one for me. Um, I was based in Edgecombe, just down the road from the Fonterra um, dairy factory there. So, And it's a really uh, working class part of my electorate, um, just on the skirts of Whakatane in the Eastern Bay. So I spent the first four weeks there. But during that period of time, um, I was a member on the Epidemic Response Committee, which is the committee that was responsible for uh, overviewing the government's response, um, government response to COVID. Uh, so that took up a lot of my time, uh, sitting in um, sometimes eight-hour Zooms uh, that were being simultaneously televised and um with a lot of running commentary on anything that we said, did, where, uh, you name it. So that, that, that comprised a big part of uh, that period. After the first four weeks or five weeks, um, I then was based in Wellington for that three-week period during lockdown, uh, as I was one of the few members of parliament that sat in the house um, I think we had a two or three-week sitting block when we first transitioned in, and that was to pass a lot of the urgent legislation related to our COVID response. So, had quite a, a quite an engaged time with um, the COVID response generally. What was the role of that res- epidemic response committee? The select committee was the role. Um, yeah, the role was yeah. So it was mandated, if you will, to. Um, assess any and all aspects of the government's response. So because Parliament wasn't sitting, uh, we had the responsibility of basically um, ensuring that there was transparency, 
uh, and that there is an additional component other than just the media to assess all of the government's decisions during that period of time. Obviously, you couldn't have that. Uh, you you'd typically have that level of um, transparency and accountability to the parliament, uh, but the parliament obviously was shut down. So this was New Zealand's domestic response to um, provide some sense of oversight, transparency and enable, um, I guess, government members or parliament members uh, to be able to ask the questions of various ministers. We also were giving a particular power, um, which is very rare and only is bestowed upon the Privileges Committee in Parliament, which is where we have the right to call any witness and the right to call or any documents to be presented to the committee. So that's a quite a significant power and one that isn't held by any other committee but for privileges, which is uh, a committee that deals with serious offences by uh, parliamentarians. So it was a world first in terms of um, adding that layer and something that I think was probably quite indicative of what um, came to, I guess, be very clear about our parliament and our government's response is that things were happening swiftly. We wanted to, you know, do everything that we needed to do from the um, the response side, and there was a lot of advice being provided, but also too, we're very committed to um, those fundamentals of our democracy, transparency, accountability, and that provided that mechanism. In the States and various other places in the world, the pandemic response has been heavily politicised. We seem to have managed to avoid that mostly, but the, you were getting some elements of that yeah, I think I think I think to the uh, to an extent it was interesting actually. I was listening to um, a podcast earlier of the former national leader um, Simon Bridges, who was giving his uh, account. Um, he was the chair of the select committee during that period, and he was also the leader of the opposition. And you know, he was giving some quite frank insights into you know the role of the opposition as to. Um, is to uh, challenge the government and, you know, it is to bring up, you know, ensure that there is accountability. But it also is quite a hard balance to walk um, because you are having to criticise all the time. And so I think I think that there was a, an element of that during the, um, during the immediate response. I think, though, that, that the team of five million, if you will, uh, was really not that keen on seeing too much of a political backlash to criticism of the government because we collectively brought into our aspirations and by and large we can see now that those aspirations have been fulfilled what for now anyway and we're also very aware that any given time that can change but you know we've got an economy right now that is literally moving um, and that is a stark contrast to our friends across the ditch. Um, Victoria, they've gone into their second round of lockdown. Level three alone was costing one billion bucks a day. Now they've transitioned to um, level four uh, and that's very heightened. You know, they've got compulsory curfew. So, and, and that, I'm not saying as a condemnation about this response, I'm merely saying that it's, um, it's something that we have here that is now our privilege and something that we must protect at all costs because our economy is doing okay for now. And um, we are able to move, we are able to trade, we are able to provide export goods where other countries can't at the moment. Um, and that is because of the collective effort. So I think that there was a real heightened sense um, amongst the community that they didn't want to see this as just a political 
tool to kick around. Actually, all of our survival depended on us going hard, going early, and then responding quickly. to play safe you're better off with the masses Say, oh. but if you're looking for fresh then welcome to the master classes it's like you're being complacent a treasure chest full of regret because there's a new move coming this is going to be as good as a guest to follow me come on your days i'm hitting the wall let's change the situation there comes a time when the time is now guidebook a cheat sheet of positive messaging or the messaging to be using during the pandemic and and now no but that's a blooming good idea <laughs> no i mean obviously there was the the um the covid 19 site uh, that had a lot of the um 
you know, the key messages that all of us needed to be cognizant of. Um, but I, I think that the message is pretty clear. You know, uh, we did need to do some things first and foremost. Uh, we needed to respond to the um, the imminent threat. I think we locked down um, the full country when we had about 34 or 35 live cases and the, the detail there just slightly, uh, 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 yeah. But it was very early on, you know, when we made that decision and we had that collective buy-in. So I think the messaging has been by and large pretty strong, you know, res um, you know respond, uh, put, the, uh, put the mechanisms in place to, you know, contain and then, um, you know, recover. Now it's about pivoting to ensure that our economy is recovering and recovering effectively. So, for example, in the East Coast, um, before lockdown, we um, started to see the first economic impacts uh, first in the Tairapiti because we're such a heavily dependent export economy on logging and forestry. Uh, so we started to see some cracks in late January, which was pretty early for New Zealand. Uh, and then we had, you know, myself and the community mobilised full-fledged probably about the second or third week of February to really start to quantify the economic Im impacts that, uh, you know, literally logs were stockpiling. We didn't have boats coming in, contracts were being cancelled. And we worked out that about one in every four families in Te Tairawhiti, either directly or indirectly, would be economically impacted by that halt in, well, was impacted by the forestry economy, basically. So even then, long before sort of all the, the nuance around, you know, what the five-step plan was, um, there was a very clear direction that we had at that time that we had to go into recovery, economic recovery mode. So to Tairawhiti, myself and, and, and leaders from the region pulled together um, a, we were the first region to secure a, an economic recovery package, a COVID-19 economic recovery package, which is focused on uh, redeployment, re-education, and basically being able to take forest workers and very swiftly trans, um, uh, transfer or retrain and redeploy into other necessary um, uh, uh, jobs and whatnot. So it was an early case of that, that approach that has been consistent respond to the health crisis, recover uh, both through that health lens, but also through the economic ones. And then you've seen um, the rest as we've gone along. You said recovery. To what extent do you think this is an opportunity for uh, a, a rethink to a regeneration or, or something else? Absolutely. I think it's a massive, we've been given a once in a, in a lifetime generation, whatever you want to call it, um, opportunity to really, I think, reassess the fundamentals of our economy, the way that we live our lives. Uh, you started to see a lot of that come through. When, 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 we became, when we became the government, you'll see that the first kind of philosophical um, amendments that we started to bring in was really around well-being as the indicia for, you know, the economy needs to serve well-being and our collective well-being. It's not this other kind of thing that should drive everything, but actually the way that we are living our lives as community members, are we happy, are we healthy, are we living, you know, do we have access to the things that make lives good? So I think, and so at that point, you know, and I got to really get, take my cap off to the Honourable Grant Robertson, who had done a lot of thinking about this in opposition. How do you measure economic wealth? Or how do you how do you measure our economy beyond GDP? And so that kind of led the foundations to his, you know, you would have seen him very excited in 2018, I think, when he released his first wellbeing economy um, budget. 
now, you know, this budget, the 2020 pre-election and, you know, the final one perhaps, or, you know, for this 52nd term anyway, would have been, you know, you would have seen big leaps and bounds in terms of the well-beings and how, you know, those would be catered for. But a big underpinning driver of that was, well, actually, um, you know, uh, uh, well, you know, he, he put a lot of emphasis on um, keeping cash in your back pocket, saving it for a rainy day. Now the rainy day is here. And so instead of it being the well-being mark too, it was the COVID-19 recovery budget. But those things aside, the question was about whether or not this provides a um, a really a, an opportunity to transform the way that we do things here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And I think that what we saw is that, one, I think that we're a lot um, stronger than what maybe some of us perceived um, and like, and that's that collective resilience that we have. Um, so as soon as we went into lockdown, those types of things, there was a lot of real height and fear that the economy was going to tank. We're going to tank, you know, it was all doom and gloom and she's over over. Well, what we've seen is that, you know, our brand to the rest of the world is really strong. So that bumped up our desirability in terms of exports, what it's meant through our budget, the COVID-19 recovery budget is that actually there was a real collective buy-in to things when we're putting money, significant amounts of cash into, you know, sustainable um, uh, outputs and, you know, like there's the Green Jobs Initiative. Um, we've seen a massive shift in terms of trying to get to um, our collective um, club, um, climate change objectives and targets. And now that there's a real sense of buy-in, I think, that you have from the community and, so I think that this is really triggering um, huge, big conversations about how to do things um, that really are fit for purpose for us here in New Zealand. And yeah, and I think you're re recognising again, we're a mighty little nation down here in the in the bottom of the South Pacific. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. I'm here speaking to you from a very different location today. So I really hope that whatever is happening around you and wherever you are, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining, very nourishing and illuminating for you more and more each day who you are triumph of nature's art it's perfect unique and here making things better thank you so here i am everybody i'm sitting in a very beautiful stunningly clean bathroom at the amazing orty porty stunning hospital and i'm being incredibly well looked after and i'm so grateful because I've been going through this very intense fever cycle over the last few days at home. And when I finally had a blood test, they said, you have to go to hospital straight away. Your CPR levels are off the charts, which was very exciting. And I don't know that they used an American accent, but they could have. And so I came into the hospital and I was given a chest X-ray, which was very exciting. And I was given an ECG, which is very exciting. Multiple times, various sharp needles were placed towards my veins and blood was extracted. And multiple times this required coaxing and communication with my body. And I was very grateful for that. 
and of course in all of that I just thought wow this is so perfect because I've been wanting and wanting to celebrate of course essential workers and now here I am surrounded by all these beautiful and very capable essential workers and so of course I've been talking to all of them and it's been amazing and I've been hearing all about their lives why they chose to do the great healing work that they do how it was for them you know having to work on through and I know for me when I came in you know I was very lucky it was still very very busy and it took several hours it took the whole day for everything to happen but apparently of course that's nothing you know I was so lucky and I was able to have a nice quiet room this is unheard of so I've been supremely, supremely blessed and I'm so grateful. And of course, I'm so grateful to be me and live here and have this amazing supportive healthcare system, have all these very caring, well-trained, passionate people and have a system that moves so fast and rationally to support me. And it's just my ode to essential workers and healthcare in New Zealand. I'm so grateful to you. So at the moment, we're still unsure about what this infection is. It might be a kidney thing. It might be something else. But they've taken my wee and they've taken my blood. And they're going to grow bacteria on it. And I've asked for photos of that bacteria. So I'll get back to you about how beautiful and gorgeous and cute they are. Very excited to meet them. And of course, I'm going to need to stay here until they can understand what's going on. And actually for me, that's fine. I've been really enjoying my stay here. Obviously, I do miss the beautiful Mansion Sanctuary, the beautiful Harvey Penfold, Naheihei Atahua, Poirot and Hastings. But I feel their love emanating from afar, and I know that this is the right place for me at this time. So I really hope that for all of you, wherever you're at in your Tenana health journey, healing journey, that it's going really well for you and you're being given lots of love and support. Something that I've also really enjoyed is this opportunity to go within in this time and particularly when I'm in my fever cycle, I'm really shaking around, talking to my body and saying, you know, what stories are shaking out of you? Tell me what's happening and all these amazing memories and stories coming out. So I think it's actually been a wonderful therapeutic process for me. But of course for me with all our body processes, it reminds me of who we are, a triumph of nature's art connected to all life. And this is something that our ancestors have moved through. This is something that our descendants will move through. So of course I'm very grateful to be part of it. And I look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Thanks so much. Kakiti. Did the be kind message flow kind of automatically from that that well-being? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, you can really see that that is the right Honourable Jacinda Dern's mark that she has left is that. And that's her, that's her gift, if anything, to New Zealand politics is the way that we engage with ideas and the way we treat each other and the way that actually we go about implementing things. Kindness isn't like a fluffy concept that's off to the side. It's actually in Tao Māori, you know, we talk about that in terms of it's actually empowering and it's about acknowledging the inherent mana 
of all things and all people and all of your surrounds. So that's a good a real, it's actually really steeped, I'd say, in tikkunga. And it's, you know, uh, it's been, you know, ridiculed by some, but actually I think it's something that's really been, that a lot of us have become very proud of that she's articulated to the rest of the world that actually you don't have to do this mudslinging weird game of politics. You can actually be kind and we can treat each other well. We can invest in the things that actually make us live good lives. And I think that that's something we can collectively here be really proud of. Of all the things you've seen in the last however many months it is, what do you think is going to stick and what do you hope will stick? Well, I think that there's a number of things. So I've seen communities really works, well, a couple of things. Communities have worked very, very efficiently and effectively together. So where in the past there might have been minor blockades or, you know, things that really absorb a lot of attention and have distracted from the end goal of just getting things done. I think that there was um, that urgency that stemmed forth from this time together has meant actually, I need you, you need me, now let's just work together and get things done. Um, so I think that that's a real positive. I think that the way that I saw central government respond was quicker than I've ever seen it respond ever. And um, this is coming off for, the, for us in the Eastern Bay at least, um, this came off the back of White Island or Fakari tragedy, which required an all-of-government response as well um, at a smaller scale, but it had a significant impact. And, you know, there were we saw a lot of challenges. It was good, don't get me wrong. You know, the various parts of government tried to respond as effectively and efficiently as they could. But what we saw in COVID was that just on, you know, on accelerated immeasurably. Um you saw whether it was, um, you know, health or civil defence or police or MB or MPI or whomever it was, but you had these organisations that so often can be bound in basically trying to do the least risky thing possible, which therefore often means that things don't get done, um, swiftly moving. And so, one, that's a risk for them because now we know how quickly they can move. Uh, but two, you know, that's something really important that I think we as um, politicians and those that are designing the system, actually, I think now that we've seen how swiftly those things can occur, that we need to kind of continue to demand that. So there's an efficiency component to that. It needs, you know, it's that efficiency and risk. Those things kind of sometimes can counterbalance and, you know, we, things become a bit too clunky. But for us in the East Coast, for example, we require government to be a lot more responsive to our needs. So that's something very, um, and I, I would say that we have been very responsive over the past three years, but this too has just shown that in all of government level that can be done. Um, so there's a lot of things I think that we can take away. I think as well, look at a really personal level, um, I've heard it reflected on multiple times, just how precious time with family was, um, you know, for myself, I might see my child once a week on a good week. Um, and, you know, you really got this just gift of time to spend with people that you genuinely love. And, um, yeah, so I think that that was just another little um, a blessing that uh, we, we, we had the opportunity to uh, have during the lockdown. I was going to ask you if in the future, is it going to make it harder for politicians to not do things because we're going to be able to point back to 2020 and say, look, see, you can make stuff happen. I hope but so. you just added a twist to that by saying the politicians are quite happy to be able to turn to the civil service and say, look, you can make things happen. 
Absolutely. Look, I, 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 I very infrequently find a politician that doesn't want to get things done for their community. Uh, I, you know, you don't enter. Politics comes with a large price tag. And um, I don't think many people come in here to do nothing. There's very few, you know, and that's on all sides of the house. Um, you know, there's a couple, like, any workplace, but by and large, I think you come here to get stuff done. So most of us of all um, colours and ilk, uh, you know, I think have expressed frustration at different times, but absolutely. One, I hope that there are less of us that want to sit on our hands in this place, but two, that um, that really does create a compelling case for us to be asked more of our, um, our public service. And really that's around efficiency and effectiveness. We know they can do it. <laughs> Other than the things that are about the, the recovery and about the things which are directly about the pandemic, has it changed any of your thinking about where we should be heading? Yeah, there's, uh, there are some, um, there's some things that's affirmed and th some things that has really clearly um, kind of have altered as well, I think. In terms of some of the affirmation, just how significant it is to to keep um, some chump change in the back pocket for a rainy day. Now, um, Grant Robertson got a lot of flack for not spending a whole heap when we first came into government after nine years of, you know, some people would say austerity, others say, you know, just not spending enough on key infrastructure. He got so much flack. Uh, the budget responsibility rules became the laughing stock on the left. The reality is, is that when we came into government, we were sitting around about 26% GDP, um, debt levels to GDP. And at the end of 2019, we got to about 19%. Now, that is significant. That is a significant buffer. It puts our economy in one of the, you know, the, the, the sweetest spots uh, for um, responding to this crisis, pandemic, um, and something that you can't overlook or take lightly. So there's a lot about that um, I think that we need to collectively remember and respond to. That doesn't mean now that we go into, you know, well, this probably leads to the second thing that I've really taken away. And these are like, I'm a child of the 80s and so lived in rural New Zealand through, you know, the neoliberal reforms and understanding that was on the back of Muldoon's, you know, spent big spends that got up to around about 90% of, you know, GDP, debt levels GDP. And so when that fourth Labor government came in, I, you know, my campaign chair, I think you've had him on here, uh, Sir Michael Cullen and his wife, uh, and they run my, they run my show. Um, but they will reflect on the first message. This is long before you had all these kind of fiscal accountabilities and responsibilities, rules and all these types of things. You, you were working, you were walking blind. So you'd campaign on doing all these great things, but you'd have no idea what was really in the Treasury Bank. So they came into their first caucus and they, you know, retell the story with such fervour about how they realised that actually as a country were broke. So that then led to um, some radical economic reforms, you know, which if I, yeah, so when I look back at the tangible impacts for us in the East Coast, I see a lot of closures of, you know, we stole down the forest, state-owned forest, so that meant all the jobs in forestry, um, you know, all of the, the, you know, our processing plants all up and around these guys and so on and so forth, right? So the lessons there, which I think we need to really hold on to and things that are really at the forefront of my mind and have solidified for me, is that with the 
with the disturbances in our economy that we know will occur and they may be sustained for how long, we do not know. What is critical is that when we encounter the crisis that we also too need to be ensuring that we are providing pathways, transitions, um, creating their economic stability or whatever we can do basically, but we can't just abandon um, places and people like unfortunately occurred in that, uh, that, that 80s and early 90s period. So there's a lot for us to learn from history, I think. What do you think we can learn from this 
pandemic and the response to the questions, the intergenerational ones, climate change, social justice and so on? Yeah, so look, some of our, uh, our most critical organisers, well, there's two things. Well, let's talk about social justice first. Um, so, look, you know, we have seen, I don't know, in my area, I just speak from my area because what I know, but, you know, basically, like, so many of our critical NGOs and um, people that provide critical um, social supports hadn't received any um, budgeting increases since 2008. You know, <laughs> um, they got their first bump in 2018 in the wellbeing budget. Um, that there has, these And these organisations will go on to provide critical support as we move forward with the economic turbulence ahead. Like they are fundamental to the way that we're going to be rebuilding. We cannot afford as a nation, as a government, as a nation, as a generation, to neglect the role that these social infrastructural organisations play. Um, they are critical to the way that we're going to be able to rebuild. We've also, you know, if I look at sort of stretch it out a step further, you know, have we invested in, you know, in the social sector in the way that we should have? No. And what's the consequence of that now? Well, we're seeing, you know, we have mass deficits in trying to get, you know, mental health experts and women counsellors and, um, skilled people because we cut all the pathways to training. We didn't invest in that area. We didn't say that this is critical to the well-being of our future. So that deserves, I think you've seen that kind of leadership already, but you know, that's something that has to be fundamentally. We have to look at the people that service our people in our place, essential workers. There you go. There's another critical one. Like, I mean, how ridiculous is it that he would, I'll not go down that line too much, but anyway, they're critical. And the way that we value people in critical services, it needs to be acknowledged through both, well, one, through a fiscal, but two, through a um, social recognition. You know, we talked about kindness before, um, and I talked about, I kind of aligned it to that principle within Te Māori around mana. And, you know, um, the people on the marae who carry the most mana, for example, the ones that can run the kitchen, why is there's not just the peacocks up the front that can spout all the, you know, the whakapapa and, and do that role. But there is like, so much mana that comes from running the kitchen and, you know, they are held in respect accordingly. And, you know, I think that we have a lot of cultural shifts to make uh, amongst us as a, as a nation about the way that we afford people dignity and respect. I think also, too, that kind of aligns to another area, again, in the sort of social sort of sector. I reflect on old um, Norman Kirk's words all the time, you know, about what makes a good life and, you know, someone to love, somewhere to live, somewhere to work and something to aspire to. You know, you know that a key component, so we're really focusing on the jobs and the other comp critical component there to security is housing. Well, that's been, you know, successive governments, I think, there's a collective acceptance have completely under-prioritised um, under uh, that earring area in, in terms of how critical it is to well-being. So, you know, and I, I, I think that what, I mean, obviously our policy platform is now for the next, um, for this election, it will be launched this weekend, but there's something very critical in that fundamental um, the component of safety, security, well-being is, is that roof over your head stuff. Yeah, kind of just gone on a big riff, sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
And you, you started with the, the response with social justice. What about climate change? Yeah, sure. So, like, look, um, we've done. We've, I mean, obviously, we've had the the zero carbon. Um, the, that was introduced by 119 of 120 members in this house found, you know, an agreement. So there's some good collective agreement there. Um, you've seen us be able to introduce um, through legislation like criteria and checks and balances in terms of what must go into planning documents and things like last week we had the uh, so last week or things are happening quickly. But anyway, recently we introduced a whole raft of requirements that were required in any long-term planning, understanding the, the climate change impacts and whatnot. You'll see that there's like funds that are available for, you know, where it's R&D or there's the Green Jobs Fund or, you know, and there's, there's, been this, there's been a real culture shift in terms of understanding or planning that there's really collective efforts are required to plan, to plan for a, as much as possible a, um, a climate protected future so I'm pretty pleased with how things are tracking but knowing that there's a lot more to do one thing that I'm really keen to see the destruction of though is there's this patience there's this consistent patience and I won't put the blame on either side it just is what it is but you know that the all all climate um, you know uh, woes are due to the agricultural primary sector and that you know uh, everything will be fine if we kill all the cows and you know when you look at our when you look at our uh, our books and you go okay about 46 billion of our exports comes from uh, the primary sector that's from a total of a 59 billion dollar you know export pool that's pretty significant and the income that that generates, the jobs that that generates, the you know, it's pretty critical to, to our well-being and our, yeah, our well-being as a nation. So how do we work more constructively? And I'm not talking about being manipulated by one sector or the other, but actually how do we collectively become better at understanding our whole nation's story. Look, I'm, I think there's a lot to be said for, sure, you can seek away, away from destructive industries. But I always think about it like this. So I was sitting with a young fella. There's a lot going on in regenerative farming and stuff at the moment, but I was sitting with this, um, I was sitting with an old fella and a young fella recently, both farmers, and he, he was talking about, you know, here they are, they've been working this this land and um, they've been doing what they thought was right, planting and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, they'd always applied heavy doses of nitrate because that's what they were taught to do and um, they'd never been taught anything different. Next minute, they start seeing all these stories in the papers about how they're evil, devil, blah, blah, blah. How do you respond if you are told that you are, you know, uh, the devil incarnate? You're kicking your steam. And, you know, that's just no way to build a starting point or a conversation. So we're asking all of us to change our collective behaviours, whether that means, you know, the cars that we drive, the the, the way that we produce um, uh, produce goods, and the way that we consume goods, we all have to go on a collective, you know, re-education and reset behaviours and trends. But I just really, I am a big ardent advocate against this blame game. We've all got a part to play. I don't think that we need to be sitting there demonising one sector over the other, particularly when a lot of this stuff has just been taught. And, you know, if you work with most people and you can put a, big, a, a bit of a case, most people want to do the right thing. So that's something I'm on a bit of a campaign to, to bring about awareness. We're not as different as we think. And uh, the, the starting point for conversation should be one around connection, not around conflict. All three of us are in a privileged position of our jobs have been 
secure through this. It's not been that way for, for quite a lot of people. How do you paint a positive future for people who are doing this hard? Mm. Yeah, so I think, I mean, look, I work with in a community that is going through a massive amount of redeployment at the moment and um, with a lot more um, redeployment likely ahead. One thing I think that we can be confident in is that there's a real commitment by the government to enable those different, to be able to take people from one sector to another. We understand it's going to take a lot of retraining. Um, we've underinvested in key areas, key labour areas like apprenticeships and all the trade trainings, but that's not just, you know, uh, you know, sparkies and chippies and things like that. It's also, you know, counselling and mental health workers and elderly care. So we are asking, so we will provide as much as of, of a buffer um, in terms of being able to provide the, the retraining. And I guess we're asking um, folks that look, you know, if you're in one of those vulnerable sectors or things are things are gonna um, they're gonna be a little bit challenging for those that are being displaced. But we are really actively trying to ensure that we can provide work for people, and it may mean that we just need to pivot for a little bit into industries that really need it. For example, in my area, yeah, basically all the trades we're really. We need tradies, we need them ASAP. We need um, people in horticulture, agriculture. Um, there, there's huge amounts of work and we and the government is providing that funding. Obviously, that's what that COVID recovery fund is for. Um, but yeah, just, uh, you know, everyone sort of does have to pivot for a little bit and we'll keep hard um, working hard. Uh, a lot of our, a lot of, a lot of like the economic kind of, future stuff too depends on what's happening in the rest of the world and the reality is like I said prior you know um, other economies that we often play with and interact with are really in quite troublesome times um, due to uh, the impacts that COVID is having and I referenced Melbourne before but we can also look to the UK the US China um, there's massive global economic disruption happening right now so for those that on the day-to-day -day that are losing their jobs and feeling a bit down and out, there are um, subsidies in place at the moment to help out with wages. Um, there are a ton of redeployment projects that are going on. Last week we launched a kind of a primary sector focused one. And, you know, I've got pilots that have just been redeployed as farm managers and we've got, you know, I've got um, an ear hostess who's, uh, you know, moved into, what's she doing? Oh, uh, uh, something else on farm anyway. But, it's about yeah. Um, it's about responding to the opportunities that we do have here, and um, and working with us to try to find the best fit. I have some questions to end the show with. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Mm. Yeah, definitely, it's been the um, for me anyway. I, I mean, I keep everything politics is local. Is that what they say? Um, our region has been essentially the largest benefactor of government investment in critical areas. So, um, you know, the, we were the first announcement for a major road package, uh, roading package, which hadn't been, I mean, you know, roads are bad in the cities, but for us, you know, we've got one road in, one road out, and massive potholes is like, you know, come for a ride in my four-wheel drive truck and it'll be better than a, a, an adventure ride at Rainbow's End. Um, but so there was, you know, we invested over 300 mil into the roads and infrastructure. 20 million bucks uh, was the first kind of major investment 
mental health um, facilities in Gisborne, and we also saw a, a similar level of investment, in, investment into uh, mental health facilities over in the Eastern Bay. Just that real focus actually on recognising that mental health is such a critical component to wellbeing. Um, you know, so really, and, and then a personal pet little favourite of mine was um, for about 20 years, the this wonderful town of Oportiki, who was significantly impacted under um, some of those 1980 and early 1990 reforms I spoke about before. It's become a major benefactor for a project it's wanted to do for over 20 years, which is focused around aquaculture and a large harbour. And it's, um, you know, in, in total, they've been kind of, received around about $150 million worth of government support for a project that uh, so many people have worked really, really hard on. So I go out to the mussel farm, you know, once every couple of weeks to see the developments and just seeing uh, locals getting into work, uh, contracts on. Um, it's It's been your little heart cries and your little heart sings when you see it all going on. It's just having massive real-life impact for real-life people that I care about. We're writing a book of these conversations it's called tomorrow's heroes it's our team of people doing good work so what's the superpower that's got you into our mansion ha! <laughs> goodness me i don't know <laughs> uh, um, boots on the ground yeah i've been a bit of a loud voice for um for places that might often be a little bit forgotten do you consider yourself to be an activist I think I'm, I'm an activist, I'm an advocate. Um, I just care deeply about our people and our place and um, making sure that regardless of who you are, where you're from, uh, your colour, your race, your creed, that you really are given uh, an equitable avenue to, to really do well in this world that we live in. I've just hosted about 50 girls from Gisborne Girls High School and one of them nearly cried because she is from a little place that I'm from, Tikaraka. And it's got a population of about 200. And, um, you know, she just said, people like us from people, places like ours, they don't get to places like this. And um, I think, you know, to be quite a visible representation of the impossible, that the impossible is possible is pretty important. What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? I think it's really that pursuit of, you know, in the cheesiest way, it's that pursuit of justice. But in a bigger way, I guess, um, or a more articulate way, it's um, it's just a genuine belief in um, in how incredible people and places like ours are and how much they need to be seen and heard. And so I consider it's a genuine privilege and an honour for the short time or however long this period of time is that I have to be in this place to yell from the rooftops about um, how our people in our place are so significant and for them to see themselves. Yeah, that's, that's basically it. What challenge are you looking forward to in the next year or so? Oh, um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how we track with the COVID recovery. Um, I really want to see us do better than what we did in the 19, late 1980s and 1990s. I want to see us uh, that where there are going to be some significant transitions that we really have um, that 
the things that we're putting in place now really do provide that niche. And I guess so it's a challenge, but it's something I'm excited about seeing and also being very loud and, you know, working with my colleagues because I know that it's a real genuine intention to want to provide that niche and it is a niche so that people can bounce. So, yeah, it's a it's an interesting challenge we're being provided with, one many we didn't expect to, to see, but I think there's um, some excitement in being able to get involved in that. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Ooh, um, roll with the punches. Don't take it all too seriously uh, and enjoy the ride. Thank you very much for that. Moira, I've got two things with big stars. I've got lots of things with stars beside. Two big stars I've got, the recent ones, one of them is that visible representation that impossible is possible and doing better at significant transitions. I think that's something we need to do. Yep, I what agree. have you got? Um, and and I, I second that. And it was um, a really, um, from having grown up uh, in very rural central Otago and then central Canterbury, I get that um, that isolation and looking at people and the things they achieve and not seeing a lot of those role models around. And in you, Kitty Tapu, I see you as this amazing role model on so many levels in our community. And I am so thankful for that on behalf of all of our young women who look to you um, and and see the possibilities ahead for themselves. You are a very good woman. Can you make a right decision for all of us? For all of us. Pale, 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 politician. Can you make a right decision for all of us? Yeah. Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from the fabulous Tahu McKenzie. All our thoughts are with you, Tahu. Please get well. We've been listening to Fakatani Band Cora 
I'm Samuel Land in Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, with Mawera Karatai in Fakatani and Kiritapu Allen in Wellington. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.